Welcome to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. This podcast is about provocative conversations with beautiful thinkers about topics that matter and the stories that have helped them reframe their lives. Grab something cozy or put on your walking shoes and let's reframe. I remember waking up to the news one morning and hearing a story about a New York sex educator who made so many parents mad about her curriculum. They got so mad, they went to the post to share their story. As a sex educator myself, I had to know more. Once I learned more about her story, I saw that it was, in my viewpoint, a huge misunderstanding and a large overreaction by the parents. When I heard her speak at a conference I had attended, I became a fan of hers and instantly thought, if I wasn't teaching my kids, I would want her to. Today, I am talking to Justine Ang Fonte. Justine is a child of Philippine immigrants and a nationally recognized intersectional health educator, speaker, and consultant. She has a master's in education and a master's in public health and sexuality. She has been featured in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Business Insider, and NPR. Her knowledge and skill set run deep, and it is a privilege to get to spend time with her. Justine, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited that you're here because when you spoke about the day when you, when you woke up to see yourself in the news at the conference that I had attended... You pulled out a lot of deep truths and wisdom about the human condition, and I'm going to talk more about that later, Um, but it definitely hit my heart when you talked about it, and I was like, this is great, but I'm wondering if you would be willing to share a bit about that morning and the realization that people were upset with how you taught. Um, it wasn't a surprise when I woke up that morning because I knew something was coming that weekend. Mm. So there was a little bit of, um, some managed expectations, um, and the, the messages had already started to roll into my inboxes, um, first positive, because I don't think the trolls had really gotten, um, into it yet. So there were a lot of messages from from close friends and coworkers that had already read the piece and um, you know were sending me their love and lights. Oh, um, and I had already read the piece too. So I had connected with family um, and really was just waiting for how the world would respond to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the piece itself to me was was hurtful, but I knew the truth. So it didn't impact me just from, you know, it's drop. But I think once the hate mail started to come in, the hate voicemails, the death threats into the DMs, that's when I started to really feel some strong emotions Mm. um, and really question if the work that I'm doing is is valid, is important enough and um, is reaching people in the way that I had intended. Mm -hmm. So there was definitely a bit of an identity crisis that was going on in the the first two weeks because there were four total articles in four consecutive weekends, but the first two articles were the most painful. 
um, especially all of the offshoots that came from that, from different other media and news sources. Mm -hmm. So it was really um, a tough moment in thinking about if, uh, you know, if I'm even doing the right work and if I'm in the right career. Yeah, I would think so. But also, I think even when you were telling the group beforehand or at the conference about the hate mail, I'm just, I'm always just astounded that people take the time <laughs> to send, uh, to send these things to people, right? This hurtful words. And so like, what was it that people were mostly upset about? Uh, so I didn't read all of them. Uh, the ones sure. that came in through um, my email, I would read like the first line and not scroll to not see the rest. And mm -hmm. usually I could tell right off the bat if it was going to be a, um, a message in favor of my work or not in favor. And so I don't know totally, but of mm -hmm. the ones that I had read or the first lines of the ones that I had read, it was very much just accusations that I am a pedophile um, and that I should never be near children, um, that what I'm doing is the devil's work, that I need to repent my soul. Wow. There were a lot of just like actions and, sure. um, and wishes that were thrown at me, but not so much constructive criticism. Right, which is so, more helpful, right? <laughs> Yeah, of like to enter a dialogue with a person it, it was more of like name calling than anything else but not like here's why this is not helpful for the, the age that these kids are at or this is what would be better for you to be covering in classrooms instead yeah here are the consequences of what you're teaching them it was really just name calling and what people want to do to my body as a result oh God, of their discomfort awful. I'm really sorry and was that mostly because, I mean, you talked about you were teaching kids their, the names of their genitals, correct? The younger kids? There were two articles that covered uh, two different classes that I had talked about, uh, that mm -hmm. I had taught. Uh, the second one was about um, private parts or private to a first grade classroom. Mm -hmm. And the first article was about a porn literacy lesson I was giving to a um, grade of 11th graders, a whole grade assembly to 11th graders. Which for me also as a sex educator just astounds me, right? Because these are age appropriate topics for both age groups that you're discussing with. And it still amazes me how people still get so upset when we, when we start to discuss the names of our body, right? And one of the things you had mentioned and some of the truths that I think you spoke about at this conference is when you were talking about getting some of the mail that first off, some people like said some beautiful things to you too, of like thanking you for some of the work that you've done. But then there is that, those horrible comments that they said. And one of the things that you said in response to some of the mail that you had gotten was something along the lines of, I realized through the comments I received, I was dealing with people who have either dealt with their trauma or people who have not dealt with their trauma. So I was curious if you could speak more about that and what you think that means. Yeah, 
uh, I would read these, um, you know, messages with high praise about how important the work I'm doing is life saving and something they wish they received, um, you know, as as a kid, and that they're grateful that their their children may have the potential of receiving similar content. Um, and you know, that was right after getting messages of some really vitriol vitriolic, you know. Um, um, uh, hate coming my way. And the one thing that those two types of emails and messages had in common, in my opinion, was that the senders, all the senders are hurting in some way. Yeah. And one has healed and one is still hurting yeah. <laughs> to the point of, um, you know, projecting that trauma, their past trauma onto some complete stranger like myself. Well, and I think this reminds me just of this weekend, I was teaching girls about their periods and puberty. And at one point when they were doing their activities, one girl came over to me and said, can we talk? And I said, sure. And she sat me down and thanked me for teaching her. And then she started to cry. And she said, she had started her period. And she said, you know, I didn't realize that periods start off brown and I didn't realize these other things that happen with them. And she was like, uh, I have been so scared that something's been wrong with me for so long, you know, and for so long is like a month or so for them, right? <laughs> At her age. But that I just keep thinking of how much we don't talk about this stuff and how many people think that something is wrong with them for so long, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so, it seems like very clear, I think from our standpoint and the work that we do, that this is what we see. So how do you think that we can help change this for people? Or how do we help people recognize that by talking about these things, it can help the hurt go away, you know, and this is actually the call of what we're trying to do. What are your, some of your thoughts around that? Uh, you know, I think one big macro way of looking at all of this is whatever we've been doing clearly isn't working. Mm. So if people need mm. evidence as to why we should change or, well, I never got that and I turned out okay. And I was like, is that really the standard? Is that really the bar you want to maintain? <laughs> right. God, I hope it's, I hope that's not the case, but what we know about so many negative health consequences around sexuality is that a lot of it stems from the taboo that we continue to keep up. Mm -hmm. And that starts with something as simple as terminology and mm -hmm. knowing these parts and knowing them as soon as you become verbal yourself. Mm -hmm. But if, you know, if you're in a family that is not even able to say these words aloud because of them feeling like they're swearing or that it's profanity mm. already you're setting up your 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 child to be ashamed of their body right and to keep secrets from you about their body right. um and so it's really as simple as naming those parts and adding to it that those parts are private parts and therefore you take care of it and you address it in private places Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, and I, I already feel like I'm making it as simple as possible and as, and as uncontroversial as possible, 
but it's so ingrained in mm-hmm. people to um, just, you know, stray away from words, these yeah. words. And one of the reasons, right, that you got into this job was because you were teaching math, right? Was that correct? And um, so what did you learn from that? Like what, I, I always thought that was such an interesting thing. Like you're teaching math to students and that made you go into sex ed because what did you see happening to these kids in your class? Well, I saw a lot of public health cases, if you will, come out mm-hmm. of this one eighth grade classroom in Houston, Texas, um, where um, you know there were students who were Katrina victim displacements. There were <laughs> kids who were members of gangs and actively involved in them. I had students who were already parents or pregnant at the time of me teaching them. And one student who was gone for half of the school year uh, because she didn't know that that her having a period was something normal. Mm -hmm. Uh, She thought she was sick all the time. So all of these public health cases, if you will, impacted their academic learning. Mm -hmm. And yet the school just figured they're not quote smart enough or they're lazy when we have systemic issues that are causing these um, public health, you know, um, uh, oppressions to be a part of their life because we're not prioritizing their health as much as we may be their math test. Mm. And there is definitely a correlation between, you know, healthy students being able to learn better and be stronger students. Um, But that's not the way our education system works in the US. It's not, you know, it's it's looking at quantitative data, seeing the change in numbers uh, and scores and tests and that they matriculate from that one grade and hopefully make it to college. And that's the one way they can be successful. Right. Um, And so when I encountered this classroom, which was my very first one in my first month of teaching, um, that's really when the seed was planted that I knew I wanted to do something maybe tangential to education, but very much tied to impacting their education, which Mm -hmm. was public health Mm -hmm. and education. Mm -hmm. And so how uh, quickly after you started doing that, did you see, I mean, what did you see come of that then from your first experiences of being a sex educator? Well, I didn't become a sex educator until about four years, three years or four years after that. I started to integrate some more um, like project-based learning and comprehensive types of um, health topics into my math classroom and with a creative approach. And so that's amazing. I can't say that like all of a sudden, no, their health was better after a math class with me, but they were at least thinking about health topics in ways that they weren't before. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the thing with, you know, being a health educator, you don't really see the impact until years later, usually, Mm -hmm. right? So a lot of like the feedback that will tell me I'm doing the right thing or the right way are from alums who have left me after now, you know, five years, six years that are in college. Um, and they're seeing that a lot of the stuff I had been teaching them is now really paying off mm. in how they understand their bodies, how they understand their relationships, how they understand their identities, um, and, you know, how to make sense of who they are and their authentic self. So um, it's a, it's a, it's a career that requires a lot of patience um, and a career that doesn't have usually a lot of instant gratification. Um, <laughs> but that's not why I'm in it. 
you know, I'm in it because I know what I'm doing is important for the lifespan. And Mm -hmm. I'm teaching them to really unlearn a lot of the things that they have been socialized to believe is true, which is really preventing them from being a truly healthy, whole human being. Right. I often think that if we put as much effort into SAT scores, right, as we do teaching and implementing relationship courses into curriculum and schools, like it would be a game changer in so many ways, right? Because I'm like, I mean, in the workforce, you have to even navigate relationships and you have to navigate those, you know, confrontation and how to have these uh, conversations. And oftentimes, like even I'm, I'm realizing that so many people, I think in the workforce today have talked about the lack of relationship skills that they see and the lack of communication skills that they see. And it's proving to be a problem. And I'm like, the fact that we're not (laughs) engaging this as much, right. Is, I mean, I'm also not surprised when we are living in a capitalist world that's still run by white supremacy. Mm -hmm. It makes sense that if we can't quantify the effectiveness of a skill set to prove, you know, for more like capital gains, Mm -hmm. then why would we invest in that? Right. So if they want to invest in relationships is because they believe that that relationship will lead to more revenue, Mm -hmm. not because it will lead to healthier relationships from human to human and really, you know, restore our faith in humanity to, you know, cultivate kindness in one another. That's hard to cultivate and that's hard. And that's also hard to quantify. And therefore it's not incentivizing Mm -hmm. when you live in a world centered on capitalism. That's the truth. My gosh. Yeah. And even at the fact of, you know, I've often said, even with teaching consent, you know, we live in a culture where our business model is don't take no for an answer. I think it's also learning and understanding dignity. And I think that's where we have problems, right? As a culture at home. What makes, you make it a point, and I think this is important to call yourself an intersectional health educator. So tell us why that's so important. And for those who don't understand intersectionality, what that is. I think most people think about health education, learning to be inclusive of vocabulary and numbers. Um, And once you know those new words and that vocabulary, you can therefore become healthy. And that is a very privileged way of thinking because that assumes that you have access to being able to change behaviors or access tools or resources for you to have those better numbers and live in those new words. Hmm. When in fact, our varied identities really dictate how we experience health mm-hmm. and the world. And so intersectionality, which is um, something that was created by Professor Kimberly Crenshaw of UCLA, um, has really taught us that it's our identities that are something that is really worth investigating and interrogating because the systemic structures in the United States specifically are holding us back from being able to access many things equally. And with my focus on health education, we have to look at how health is not accessible to every person equally. Right. Even though health is a human right. Mm-hmm. 
So that's where the problem is. I can teach them about all the statistics to scare them into, you know, eating healthier or doing things healthier or whatever it is. I can give them all the new terminology of, you know, the spectrum of sexuality, but that doesn't mean they'll actually able to live in that reality of mm -hmm. being a queer person safely. Right. It doesn't mean they'll be able to access birth control because they know the better one to use versus the one that, you know, they were, they learned elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and we have to look at, you know, so many different types of identities from culture, religion, to body type, to skin color, to age, um, to region where you live, that is all really a barrier or a privilege to being able to access things around health. Mm -hmm. So I teach health education through that activist sense that brings up a lot of, um, of the harsh realities and the buzz kills, if you will, mm -hmm. because otherwise I would just be teasing my students into saying like, hey, look at what this beautiful you know, thing is here. And it's right. like just dangling some carrot that they'll never be able to reach because we're still living in a world run by white supremacy. Mm -hmm. So how do we dismantle the thing that is preventing us from being truly healthy and happy and fulfilled in our bodies? Right. And is that something then that you find where the barrier is in terms of having these real conversations within a school and being able to implement curriculum that addresses all these things? Is that the main, bar the main barrier that we have? Can you repeat that question? Yeah. So I'm just saying like, because we are still living under white supremacy and the patriarchy and different things like that, this is, that is then, do you see that as the main barrier of being able to have these more of these conversations within a school, within public schools and implementing the curriculum that is necessary to address all of these things? Yeah, I think yeah. it's one of the core barriers, one of the central reasons why um, we are in this problem to begin with. Mm -hmm. It's white supremacy, it's the patriarchy, it's colonial, you know, it's colonialism, it's capitalism. All of these are so intertwined and related and um, helping one another out mm -hmm. in the search of more and more power for mm -hmm. a very specific small group. Exactly. of individuals to obtain and to, ha to have. Mm -hmm. And that's the question, right? Is how do we help break that down? How do we continue to stop living in the, in the, what is it? The clenches of it, correct? Right. Yeah. How has, how has your life been changed since that day? Since people decided to not constructive give you constructive criticism, but decide to take this into the press instead of coming directly to you? You know, I'd be um, lying if I said that I have lost um, a little bit of faith in, um, in some humanity, just because they were very loud, negative voices that were yeah. coming, you know, coming at me. And um I, I've never been attacked in that way before. I've never felt that scared before for myself or my family. Um, and I also know I'm still healing from it. So right now, um, you know, a little bit more than maybe almost a year, um, you know, later, 
uh, I would say that I've, I've grown a little bit cynical about people. I've become a little bit more um, introverted in the sense that I'm a lot more selective with who and how much I spend time with other people. Mm-hmm. I have definitely a less, uh, a smaller tolerance for um, dissenting views. So if anything, I've been a little bit more stubborn in my sure. viewpoints because mm-hmm. of uh, how my viewpoints have not been even considered as maybe something valid. Right. Um, that same, you know, patience and understanding wasn't afforded to me. And so I'm still healing from that. There's definitely, you know, some, some bitterness and pettiness that's still present, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is natural after, yeah. you know, yeah. receiving hundreds of death threats and, um, you know, being street and warranted, harassed. like very warranted, right? Right. And being street harassed and seeing my own neighborhood have, you know, um, you know, blogs with my face and the word pedophile across it. Oh my so, gosh. you know, it's going to take me some time to maybe re-enter the world, in, you know, in the way that I had used to occupy it yeah. um, freely and socially. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other hand is that I feel like I was able to turn a lot of that notoriety into something really productive for my own personal career. Um, and especially as a new freelancer. So Mm -hmm. after I had decided to resign from my school after nine years, um, you know, I think a lot of people were able to learn of me and my career because of what had happened. Mm -hmm. I wish it was more on my own terms and in a positive light, but Mm -hmm. I think I did a pretty good job at um, reclaiming my name to be something that has a lot of good to offer into the world. Um, And you know, using that platform that uh, of attention that was given um, to me to change people's minds, mm-hmm. um, or at least just give them more information to understand that what I was always doing was good and right and and wholesome mm-hmm. uh, and protective of our most vulnerable mm-hmm. um, students. Um, and so, my life has changed in that I am now a full time freelancer, and I have. Uh, felt so fulfilled in the freedom to uh, make my own hours, make my own rates, wake up on my own times, go to bed at my own times and do activities that I chose to do Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to, you know, having them approved by somebody else um, while also wearing so many different hats that I didn't want to wear or take on as a school teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, so I really get to do the best part of teaching, which is to teach. Right. And everything else is, is stuff that I don't have to deal with. Um, so it's been really liberating and also to be able to take on other types of creative endeavors that I've never would have had time for as a school teacher. Um, and so I'm excited to, you know, get my books out there. I'm excited to get my own podcast out there. Um, I'm excited to do some, you know, other news and TV engagements. Um, and these were all things I, you know, wouldn't have been able to say yes to in the past. Mm-hmm. So, and in some strange way, the universe, <laughs> as hurtful as it can be at times, has given you this other way of being able to educate more people, which is also pretty wonderful because, I mean, just hearing you speak and like when I was at the conference, like you have a way of, of being in front of people and presenting yourself and seeing them and 
a holding space for people, which is exactly what is needed. How do you feel like, and I don't know how you feel about this, but like, how, how do you want to be seen right now? I want to be seen as an educator that intends on making this world a lot kinder. Mm-hmm. Pretty simple, right? Yeah. Pretty simple and yet <laughs> so hard mm-hmm. to achieve and so hard to um, convince people to buy into. Yeah, which just makes me sad on multiple levels. So what is your advice then for, for parents and for those who are in still in education who struggle to accept some of this um, this particular set of education. But what is your advice for parents who struggle with the idea of their children learning about sexuality? I would ask them to think back on their education and if they were well-informed, if they had a positive view of sexuality, And usually the answer is no, they want Mm -hmm. better for their child in general, in any subject, but more so in one that is so, um, you know, stigmatized. And if the answer is, yeah, I want them to be able to know more and know better than I did, then that means that you have to do something differently than how you were raised. Uh, It means that you have to be willing to do the inner work to start healing from your own traumas and your own, you know, socialization um, and understand that your child is living in a different, um, in a different time Mm -hmm. where sexuality is something um, so much more a part of their everyday identities than Mm -hmm. it was you know, to just procreate or not procreate. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's really a responsibility for parents in 2022 to really do something different and um, know that there are so many resources that are out there that were not there when you were a child. And so even though this can sound like a very daunting task, it is not insurmountable. And Mm -hmm. there are so many um, people doing this work who are experts and credentialed like myself. And there are so many resources out there for free consumption and paid consumption to help you through that journey so that you know you're not alone and that you're doing the work right. Mm -hmm. And do you think some of the things, I wonder for some people if it's scary for them because they have had the trauma, right? To enter into this work, because there is an element of learning about things you didn't maybe want to address. What are ways that you think or have helped other people in the process of helping them through understanding that once we approach the trauma, that we're able to grow from that? Like, are there different things that you have done before to help people to understand that? Well, I think people need to realize that, you know, the trauma was not something you were responsible for but your healing is, is something you're responsible for. Mm -hmm. And if you are now a parent, then it is your responsibility to provide better for your child. But in Mm -hmm. order to do that, it means taking charge of your own experiences Mm -hmm. so that you don't bleed from those onto 
your child who doesn't deserve that and deserves a lot better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So another question I had was, what is your hope for sex education in the future? That it exists in schools in the same way that math exists in schools. Mm -hmm. Also a very simple ask and yet so radical because only 18 states are even mandated to have it. Which is wild, right? I mean, it's ridiculous. And that's just like basic sex ed. It's Mm -hmm. not even comprehensive, Mm -mm. you know, intersectional sex ed. Um, So my goal is that it lives in every school, private, Mm -hmm. public, charter in the United States and is as normalized as math class. Mm -hmm. The world would be different, everybody, if we did this, (laughs) please just offer this into your schools because it just, it would change everything. I just remember, like I tell people all the time, I got into this work because when I took the time to really look at my sexual autobiography that I had to do for a class that I was in, when I did that, I was like, oh my gosh, I discovered all these different uh, cycles that I had experienced uh, that I continued to do in relationships. I recognized the way the poor view that I had of myself based on some of the things that were told to me around sex and sexuality. And it changed my life. And I was like, if everyone did this, it's just our world would be different. And I think that we'd also have a deeper understanding for one another and we would have a deeper appreciation for each other. I just really hope that we can get there. Um. So what is the story that you are reframing for your life right now? Um, you know, this year I said that the, the title chapter for where I'm at in my career is, um, is called Reset. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never been, you know, um, my own boss. Um, I've always been doing this work for other people. I'm still working and doing this work for other people, but those specific projects that I'm saying yes to um, is because it's something that serves my well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really going beyond the, am I making doing this for income or am I doing this because it fulfills me? Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of that reset um, time in my life is to, um, now prioritize what is my body saying to me Mm. and listening to what it needs and wants um, and being able to say yes to only things that serve me in terms of projects um, because I have that privilege now being a freelancer Um, and, you know, exercising my boundaries um, more than ever before, not just out of protection, but out of um, uh, a desire for longevity Mm -hmm. Um, and happiness. Um, And so this reset is really thinking about things differently, a different mindset, um, a reset on intention. Um, And so far it's going pretty well. That's great. I also was curious of how, what would you say to other sex educators right now? I would tell them that you're not alone, no matter what type of experience you're dealing with um, in, you know, with, with the, without 
not in a negative way, but um, you're not that special. <laughs> There's a, there are a lot of other sex educators that are dealing with exactly what you're dealing with. It feels like you're really special mm-hmm. because you're the only person that's talking about this likely in your school community, or you're the only person that believes that this is the way that it should be done. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are many others who are also completely alone in their school or organization doing that work. And it's just a matter of connecting with all of us because we Mm -hmm. are here. And I say this from personal experience on feeling like I was very alone Mm -hmm. in my school, in my community, in the press, being the target, you know, for three months on sex education and realizing that this is not old news. The patriarchy has been doing this since we decided to subvert their messaging. Um, And we're out here and we're supporting each other. And there are many different networks and alliances and coalitions and organizations and groups that have so many sex educators who have gone through similar types of experiences and have solutions Mm -hmm. and tips as to how to power through and come out um, strong and Mm -hmm. stronger. Mm -hmm. Um, And I am proof of that. So you know, if you're listening to this episode and you're a sex educator who has felt alone, all you have to do is shoot me a DM, email me, find me on my website, see the other sex educators that I follow on my social media, because there's a lot of us that are actually doing this. And um, I think when we work in community, that's where healing occurs. um, And that's really where our power is as a collective. Mm -hmm. And I also want to say that one of the things I've discovered from sex educators that I absolutely love is they're so willing to share. Everyone just wants this message to be, you know, talked about and wants to support and wants people to heal. And so people are just very caring in this community and I love it. And I love that we're able to like, even, you know, continuously learn from one another almost call each other out too on some things where we're like, maybe that's not as helpful. Or did you think about making this more inclusive? <laughs> you know, things like that, which is super great. Well, Justine, I just want to thank you because I think one, I first, I also just want to say, I'm deeply sorry that you had that experience and that people weren't willing to look more deeply into who you are and how you have shown up for so many people for a long time, right? Like how, You've been doing this for how many years now? Uh, 13. Yeah. So I just wanted to apologize for that on behalf of everyone, um, because it's, it's not okay. And thank you for continuing to go to move forward and finding ways of not letting this get you down and knowing that this is something that you're, I feel if I can say the language called to do, you know, so I appreciate you. And how can people find you then now that you're doing freelancing and if they want to book you for a talk or anything like that? They can find me on my website. It's justinefonte.com. And they can follow me on social media. My personal social media is I'm Justine AF. And my boundary setting account where I ghostwrite scripts for people who struggle setting boundaries with people in their life is underscore good period buys underscore. Can you say something briefly about that? If people are like, what? <laughs> what is 
that even mean? <laughs> so if you are on a second date with somebody that you don't want a third date to happen with, and you don't know how to reject them, you shoot me a DM and get my help to send a text on how to compassionately assert um, yourself at rejecting them for a third date. If you have a body shaming mother-in-law that continues to say inappropriate things to your toddler and you're trying to raise them in a body positive space, but you don't know how to say this in a compassionately assertive way to your mother-in-law, you DM me and ask for my help. If you have a boss that's taking advantage of your overtime and not compensating you, but you don't know how to tell them that because you are afraid of how they will react, you DM me and I will ghostwrite it for you. There are many different scenarios um, that have come my way. If you just peruse the grid, you'll get many a templates. That's why they're there. And if there's not one that suits your needs, you can DM me for a custom request um, because I am uh, a pretty good writer and a pretty good boundaried person to be able to put those two skill sets together and help the world be a more compassionate place. Um, that's amazing. And quickly, how did that even become something where you're like, <laughs> I need to do this for people? <laughs> this sounds like a part two episode, Kara. <laughs> I know, but this is amazing. <laughs> um, from me being a dating human being in New York City and having to send a lot of rejection messages to wow. uh, men that wanted to see me for a, another date. And I didn't want to, <laughs> but I also <laughs> am not going to ghost them. So right. I compassionately um, you know, reject them. That's great. I love that you offer that for people <laughs> and clearly they're asking for help, right? Definitely. That's great. Well, thank you so much for being with me on the show today. Thanks for having me. I wanted to take a moment to briefly unpack a little bit more of what Justine and I had spoken about. I get that so many of us are nervous to talk about uh, private parts and give names to private parts and to have those conversations with our kids. I want to help you understand that really research has shown that when we talk to children early and teach them the proper names of our private parts, that it actually helps decrease the chance of them getting sexually abused. And all of us really want that to be the case. And so when we teach kids the proper names of their body parts, right? Like we teach them elbow and we teach them eyeball and we teach them nose and we teach them toes. It's perfectly okay to also give the proper names to our genitals. The thing that we have to understand is that it's the adult brain that eroticizes them. It's not the child's brain. The child's brain hears the words and puts meaning to it and thinks, this is the name of my body part. They don't turn it into something that we turn it into. So oftentimes we get confused about what kids might be thinking where we say things like, oh, it's going to ruin their innocence. No, it's not. Hearing the proper names of our body parts is knowledge. It's not ruining innocence. It's actually helping them sustain innocence because as I said before, with the research, when they hear those terms, and then when you start talking to them about what touch is okay and what touch is not okay, then they're able to use those words to say, so-and-so 
touched me here and use those proper names. And when they do that, they're more likely to report and they more are more likely to deter people from touching them. And so part of what we have to do is we have to break down the stigma around naming our body parts because of what we've been taught growing up where we've been taught to be secretive about so many things, but being secretive is what is what grooms abusive behavior. And so many of us want to end that abusive behavior. And so when myself and other sex educators like Justine go into these places to help teach, it's because we want better for our world. Because we know firsthand maybe of how we have felt growing up, of how we felt alienated against our bodies, how we felt so much shame towards our bodies or how we didn't know or understand something and maybe made choices that we feel crummy about. But if we have this education and can talk about it, then we have a sense of power around our own body autonomy. We know how to make choices and it can be better for us. But alongside that, as Justine talked about with intersectionality, we also have to recognize that culture plays a big role of it. Classism plays a big role in this. And learning how to obtain medical care and learning how to have access to the things that protect us. So we have to continue to bring into schools to teach about you know, how to have safer sex, how to help protect ourselves and what does that mean? And then make those things accessible for our teenagers. Because the truth of the matter is, the other thing we have to start destigmatizing are STIs. Because we have in our population, it's around this, excuse me, the statistics are saying that one in two people have them. And it's a growing, uh, the demographic that is has the highest is 15 to 24 year olds. And they're also the ones who are not taught how to have the conversations around keeping themselves safe or how to obtain the, the needed barriers to help them. So it is a health, a public health issue, just like Justine was saying. And there's so much that we need to learn about this. And there's so much that we have to do to break down some of these systems that are set up to not allow people to succeed. And this is kind of the concept around the white supremacy issue that we were talking about. And for those of us who are white, like myself, we still hear this. And at times, right, I think a lot of people still have those weird feelings around it. But the truth of the matter is our, our, a lot of the systems in our country were set up to really privilege the white uh, demographic. And we have to step aside and we have to recognize that. And we have to move aside and we have to help others gain the rights and the privileges that we have had because that is what's going to make for a healthy society. And that is also recognizing dignity dignity for the human beings who 
occupy this planet and who we live in community with. Becoming a sex educator for me, one has made me, has made my eyes open more to the disparities that many cultures face that many white middle-class people do not face. It also has made me, I think, a lot less judgmental (laughs) in terms of how we react and act in relationships to one another. And it has made me more willing to, to learn and admit when I am wrong and to open up pathways of education and learning in ways that I too need to grow. So I see my job as, and as a sex educator, a place of renewal, a place of growth and a place of being absolutely challenged in the best way. And I'm hoping that as a listener or someone who comes to my show, that you too will find these opportunities to learn more and to challenge yourself and to also take this time to help healing in any way that you need to be helped in your healing. And it's hard and it's not something we really like to do, but I believe that it's necessary and know that there's support systems out there for you. And like Justine said, there is a world of sex educators out there. There is a world of resources now to help you along the way. And you can find the people that best speak to you, right? Um, Because that's how it is. Like sometimes we're not for everyone and that's fine. But my goal and dream as a sex educator is that everyone will start to learn their value and that everyone will start and recognizing that they have their own agency over their body and body autonomy, and that they deserve really good relationships. And in order to do that, we need to provide education. And so that's why I do what I do. And that's why Justine does what she does. So thank you again for tuning in. And yeah, if you need, if you want to talk more about anything, please reach out and contact us uh, or contact me at www.reframingourstories.com or reach out to Justine because we are here for you. Thank you.